is something that you value? My family, wife and kids, and nature. What is something outside of God or church that you value or treasure? I definitely value and treasure my friends and family. My husband and my two sons and my two daughter-in-laws and my five grandsons. Um, hunting and roping. I value hot tea and a quiet afternoon by myself. <laughs> well, my wife, we've been married 41 years. Uh, family is great. Our kids and grandkids don't live close to us, but we treasure them and get to spend time with them. What's something that you value or treasure? Probably my friends and family, and I'm glad that I actually have friends and family. And I really like doing sports with my sister and my siblings. My fantasy football team. Excellent. Without a doubt, my bride. Um, she, we've been together for 24 years. Um, outside of that, our community, the life that we do with all of our friends that are closer than family, it seems. Um, I mean, obviously, my family. And then a solid massage is pretty high up there on the list. Music, knowledge, fire. <laughs> my family. Yeah, I probably said that like that was like a dumb question. Sorry. <laughs> my family, yeah. All right, Jackson. Outside of God or church, what is something that you treasure or value? Um, I really treasure my friends and my family, um, school, and um, I really treasure like my brothers. Um, beauty. Not not like my beauty. <laughs> but like beauty and God's creation and in art. Um, my family and friends that I love like family. What are some things that you treasure or value? My flowing locks. You know, I have the, um, final edit say on everything that happens in here and I, I was going to edit that out and it hit me it was actually the spirit of jealousy that was going to cause me to edit it out I mean honestly if I could grow enough hair on my head to get back in a ponytail I would probably value it as well all my fellow balding guys said you don't have to do it okay just come on it's a great question is it not what is it that we value what is it that we treasure? Hear the word treasure for a moment, because at some level, we, we know what the word means. But I think if we really think about it, we'll find that we really don't use it all that often. Most of the time, we kind of make it synonymous with the word value like we did on the video, but treasure and value are not exactly synonymous. See, to value something, we consider it to be important, um, worthwhile, or useful. And you can see that in the video that there's a lot of various things that we value, but we don't value them at the same level, do we? Like I can say easily, I value having a hunting dog. And at the same time, I can say I value having a wife. I don't value them at the same level. Now she says sometimes I mix them up, I don't believe I do, but you get what I'm saying. So we value things at various levels, but when we use the word treasure, we almost exclusively use it for something that is of extreme value. When we hear the word treasure, we tend to think of hidden treasure. 
We think of the lore of stories like maybe the movie National Treasure with Nicolas Cage or maybe a book um, like Treasure Island where people have made great sacrifices in their lives just at the opportunity to find something of utmost value in life. In 2010, a man by the name of Forrest Finn actually hit a treasure. Any of you have heard of Finn's treasure? Hands up. Hersey, you learn something new at Beltway Park all the time, right? In 2010, supposedly Forrest Finn hit a treasure chest in the Rocky Mountains full of gold and other values that was purported to be valued between $1 million and $5 million. Then he wrote a 24-line poem that was really a riddle in his memoir and said if you solve each line of the poem, 24 hints, it would lead you to the great treasure in the Rocky Mountains. The lore of this treasure went viral and tens of thousands of people began to search for it. People actually began to search, um, form groups online where they would agree that if together they, they solved the puzzle, that they would split the prizes. Some people went as far as being convinced that they were gonna find it, that they made legal arrangements to ensure if one of them found it, we all got a piece of it. 2010 turned into 2012, and 2012 went to 2015, and 2015 went to 2018, and then 2019. And a lot of people were beginning to say Finn was just a crazy eccentric who created a ruse, but others were absolutely convinced it was real. At least five people died looking for the treasure that Finn had laid out there. Then in 2020, I don't know if you heard it or not, somebody actually found the treasure. Maybe you missed the news of the found treasure because there were a few things happening in 2020. I don't know if you remember that or not. Um, but they did find it. They didn't release the name of who that person was until 2022. Treasure. Come on. Treasure isn't a common word for us, if we're honest, because it's a word we reserve for special occasions. For things of extreme, if not the greatest of value. So it should really make us sit up and take notice. When we're reading the Christmas story in Luke's account of the gospel, that it is used not once, but the word is actually used twice. When the Bible says something like this, and Mary treasured, say treasured. He treasured up all these things. Now, Luke, unlike Matthew, Mark, and John, was not an eyewitness account to the things of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and John, along with Luke, make up the four gospel stories, but three of them were actually eyewitnesses of the things that happened. Luke was not. Luke was a Gentile. Gentile simply means non-Jewish, okay? He was a non-Jewish physician who seemed to have come to faith through the Apostle Paul on one of the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys. In the book of Acts, you'll find that sometimes Luke actually joined Paul's team. As they went around the Roman Empire, they shared the gospel of Jesus, and they started churches. Somewhere along the way in his faith journey, this doctor became inspired of God to write down an account of Jesus' life and the life of the early church. So Luke wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. But the way he did it, because he didn't see all the things of Jesus, he didn't hear himself all the things of Jesus, he turned himself into an investigative journalist. And he began to interview the eyewitnesses of those accounts. And one of those would have been Mary. So it's interesting to me that when Luke says, and his mother, speaking of Mary, treasured up all these things in her heart, he's not quoting Mary. 
I don't think Mary actually used these words of herself. I don't think she said, well, I treasure these things. I think what happened was Luke was um, investigating this. He was interviewing her, and he listened to all the things. And out of the overflow of her heart, as he had to summarize her and her journey, he decided he had to come up with a rare word. And he used this rare word of Mary that she treasured. And I'm going to challenge you that this is what makes Mary, Mary. See, most of us, if we're honest, when we look at the story of Mary, there's something in the back of our mind, if we're not careful, that think, well, Mary's story of faith is a great story of faith, but it's not my story of faith. I can't be like that because she was different than the rest of us. It has actually been taught in church history that Mary was different than other humans. It's primarily been held in what you would call the historic church. The historic church are the various Catholic churches, the various Orthodox churches that have existed thousands of years. But what we can do because of this is we can think, I can't look at Mary's faith journey. I can't look at her as an example for my life because she's different than the rest of us because that's what has been taught by these historic churches. Now, please don't mishear me. I'm not against the historic churches. I have visited Catholic churches, Eastern Orthodox churches, Eastern Catholic churches, Syrian Orthodox churches. I have talked to some of their leaders. I have read of their ancient leaders and learned a lot in my faith journey. I appreciate so many facets of the historic church. However, when it comes to Mary, I think they've said some things that are not just based on tradition. They actually counter the Bible. And they cause us, if we're not careful, to actually miss out on what we can learn from the life of Mary and her faith journey. Like, how many of you have ever heard the term immaculate conception? Put your hands up right now. You've heard that. Now, most of us right now are probably think that's Jesus. Because immaculate conception means a miraculous conception. Didn't happen by normal biological means. How's that for sensitivity with parents with young kids in here, okay? Didn't happen the normal ways, but came about miraculously. That was Jesus. Absolutely true, but the term immaculate conception is actually not about Jesus. Believe it or not, in the historic churches, it's about Mary. That it is taught that Mary was conceived not by normal biological means, but she too had an immaculate conception. And the implication is that because of that, she was not affected by original sin. That she was very much like Jesus, believe it or not. She didn't need anyone to save her. Even though the scripture says for all, say all, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are can all be justified freely by his grace through redemption that came through Christ Jesus. That, by the way, includes Mary. See, Mary was the mother of her own Savior and Lord. It is also often taught that Mary remained a perpetual virgin, that she never had normal marital relationships with her husband because the implication is that even marital relations, again, I'm trying to be sensitive here, that marital relations are somehow sinful even in the confines of marriage. We're going to actually talk about that in January. The only problem with teaching this is the scripture says, coming to his hometown, Jesus, this is an adult Jesus, began teaching the people in their synagogues and they were amazed. So he's in Nazareth. And they ask, where did this man get this wisdom, these miraculous powers? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters here with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. So Jesus had four brothers. He had sisters. If Mary was a perpetual virgin, where'd they come from? You know what I'm saying? Some churches actually teach that Mary didn't die. 
that she was actually taken directly to heaven. Now, we know that can happen to humans. We know from the Bible that happened to Elijah. It happened to a guy um, named Enoch. I think I said Methuselah, the first service, wrong name. But it happened to Enoch early in the Old Testament. But the Bible gives us no revelation of that of Mary. But they say that Mary was taken straight into heaven like Jesus, and she was crowned queen of heaven. And her role is to intercede for humanity, and therefore a lot of people pray to Mary to pray for us. Now I need you to hear me. I am absolutely confident, according to Scripture, that when men and women of faith in Jesus die, that they become part of the great cloud of witnesses. They pray for us. They intercede for us. It's all of them. Not just Mary, but all of them. So if you have loved ones who are in heaven, I believe right now they are probably an intercessor for you. But listen to me. We don't pray to them. The scripture says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, that great high priest is, is Jesus. He's the son of God. Because of that, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. But he and he alone was without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. I approach the throne of grace. I approach the throne of grace. There I may receive mercy and grace for help of time and need. Because of Jesus and the grandness of what Jesus and Jesus alone did, listen to me, we can approach directly the God of the universe. I challenge you next time you pray, when you just say, dear God, my Father in heaven, Abba, stop and just think what you get to do. The King of all kings the Lord of all lords, we can just go straight to him. It is why, by the way, we have a Protestant tradition. Most people, when they end a prayer in Protestant circles, they end with a four-word phrase. In Jesus' name, amen. And a lot of people, if you don't end a prayer that way, they wig out like in a big way. I challenge you to do it someday. Just have your prayer and don't say in Jesus' name, just go. And we say all these things, da-da-da, you say your prayer, go amen. Somebody will go, ooh, did that one count? I mean, you gotta put the in Jesus' name thing in there. Listen to me, that's not, the Jesus' name is not in the Bible. It is a tradition to try to remind us that when we approach the throne of grace, we don't do so based on our own merit, not because we're good, not because we've done enough good things. We do it because we have a great high priest who has gone before us, and so therefore, in Jesus' name, we can approach the throne of grace, right? But I want you to be clear. Jesus alone is our high priest. Jesus alone sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for us, and I need to be very clear on this. There is no one who, by which we can be saved under heaven and earth except the name of Jesus. Some actually teach that Mary is a co-redemptress, that she's a co-savior of Jesus, and that's not in the scripture. You hearing me? So even as we talk about Mary and her journey of faith, I understand that the, the, there are these extra biblical traditions that can somehow make us think, well, I, I can't really look at the life of Mary because Mary somehow is different than the rest of us. I know that there are people who make their faith actually more about Mary than they make about Jesus. In 2004, look it up on the internet, a lady actually sold a grilled cheese sandwich for $28,000. Because purportedly, there was a burn mark where you know you make the grilled cheese, and it looked like Mary. Even though we don't know what she looked like, it looked like Mary. She sold that dude for $28,000. Anybody going to go make some grilled cheese sandwiches when you get home? See what can happen, right? Going to be working it. Work that butter in just the right way. 
Here's what I need you to hear. Hear this. Mary was as ordinary and unlikely as any of us. She was more like us than any of us can, can fathom. In fact, I would challenge she was probably more unlikely. In Jewish tradition, you probably have heard of the term of a bar mitzvah. A bar mitzvah is when a Jewish boy turns 13, he goes through a rite of passage into adulthood. Now, bar mitzvahs today among Jewish people are really kind of an honoring of the young man. But in the first century, in Jesus' time, you actually move from going from childhood into adult status. Most of us, though, maybe don't know that there's actually one for young ladies, a bat mitzvah. It happens when they're the age of 12. In Jesus' day, in the first century, once you bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah, you were actually ready to get married when you finished. So some of you are going, whoa, 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 back the truck up there. You're saying that 13-year-old boys, but you're going to have to say 13-year-old man in their tradition. And you're going to say a 12-year-old woman would be married. Bingo. See, my wife and I got married a long time ago when we were 19 years old. Dozens of people approached us to talk to us about whether we should be getting married that young. I'm just telling you, my wife would have been an old maid in Jesus' day, waiting until she was 19 years of age. What I'm telling you is this. When we read the Christmas story, which I hope you will do this week, I hope you'll read it in Matthew, you'll read it in Luke, you'll read it in the Gospel of John, and when you hear of Gabriel visiting a young woman by the name of Mary, realize that she was probably no older than 15 years of age, more likely 12 or 13 years old when this happened in her journey. Until Gabriel showed up, Mary knew exactly what her life was going to be like for the rest of her life. She knew that within a year, she was going to marry Joseph. She was going to be the wife of a carpenter. They were going to have as many kids as they could, and they were going to live in Nazareth for the rest of their life. They were going to live in this place that no one had heard of. I need you to realize, Nazareth was not this great city. Nazareth was so podunk. It had no blinking light. It had no post office. It did not have a Dairy Queen. It was a nothing village among the most redneck part of all of Israel life. In fact, later on, there was a guy named Philip. And Philip became a follower of Jesus, and he introduced, Jesus, uh, introduced Nathaniel to Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel actually said, Nazareth, can anything dare good come from a place like that? Listen to me. Mary was an inexperienced kid. There was nothing about her life, nothing about her family upbringing, nothing about her education, nothing about her experience level, nothing about the city that she was part of that would earn her the right to be the mother of a Messiah. It is actually quite possible that Mary could not even read or write. Now, Jewish people actually did teach their children to read or write, especially so that they could engage the Torah. But in the villages, often young, uh, young women weren't given that right. Now, she may have picked it up on the side. I can't tell you for sure. I am just telling you, she was as unlikely and ordinary as any of us. And yet God chose to bring her into this equation. What was it about Mary that caused the heart of God to turn to that unlikely place in Nazareth? I'm going to challenge this one word. She treasured. And I think even before she knew about the Messiah, there was something about her that treasured the grandness of her God. I mean, listen to the way she responds when Gabriel shows up. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. 
But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this would be. Now, even that word discern tells us something amazing about Mary. Think about it. If an angel showed up to you and began talking to you, isn't there a part of you that would just go, dude, this is freaking amazing. An angel is right here. She doesn't do it. She actually begins to assess the situation. She so treasured her God that she wanted to make sure she wasn't deceived. She wanted to know, am I hallucinating? Is this of the enemy or is this of God? That word discern is like an accounting term. It means to take an audit of something that is going on in her life. So she doesn't immediately accept what um, Gabriel says. She doesn't immediately say yes. She is weighing the cost, discerning the encounter. And then Gabriel says, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua, Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, this may seem like hyper-church, hyper-spiritual kind of language, but not to Mary. See, Mary knew from her earliest upbringing that there was a promised one called the Messiah, called the Christ, who was going to come and set the Jewish people free. All her life, she had heard the promises of the Messiah. All these words, they are the words of the Messiah. They are very specific words that she would have known. And it seems like the promises for the Messiah were promises that she treasured in her heart. Now, I, I don't know about you. But if I were in Mary's place, which would be a little awkward because like, I'm a dude and not a female, but you get what I'm saying. If I'd been in that place, you'd been in that place, and Gabriel had said these things to us, how many questions would you have asked? How much would you have interacted with? I mean, Mary was weighing the cost. You do understand that Mary would begin to understand, even at a young age, the implications of this. I'm gonna be pregnant but not by normal means. How am I gonna explain that? I mean, parents, your 14-year-old shows up and says she's pregnant. And then when you begin to talk to her, she says, whoa, 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 whoa. This is a God thing. Like, really, it's God thing. How well does that fly? Every young lady, not every, most every young lady I know of, dreams of her wedding. No different in the first century. They didn't have a lot of resources, but they did weddings. A wedding feast would be three to seven days long. They did weddings. And Mary would know this, no wedding. She's weighing the cost of all this. I would have had lots of questions. Mary had one. She's like, I may be young, but I know about the birds and the bees, and this bird ain't been with her bee. How is this gonna be? And Gabriel, in essence, read it, says, God can do whatever he wants whenever he wants. And her response, it's staggering to me that a 13-year-old, a 14-year-old, let's make her aged, 15. After one response, she says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Whatever you want to do, do. Let it be to me according to your word. Come on. Is that not one of the most incredible, extraordinary responses of faith that you've ever heard? 
I mean, I would challenge, you are here today. You are watching online. You're engaging at the North Campus. We're all present today. Why? Because we want this to be true of our lives. Every person of faith right now, we read that and say, yeah, I would like to respond to God that way. That whatever God would say to me, I would say, behold, here am I. I'm your servant. Whatever you want, that I will do. And every one of us is struggling because we're saying, that's not as true of me as I'd like it to be. I would struggle with that a whole lot more. How did she get to this place? Might I suggest it's tied to one word. This rare word that we don't throw out often. And I'm just going to tell you, I don't think we should throw it out often. This word that when an investigator not only talked to Mary, but he also talked to other people about Mary. And he had to summarize the overflow of her heart and the reality of who she is. He could only come up with one word. Mary treasured up all these things. Mary had allowed the greatness of God in his heart for humanity to so capture her heart that she treasured Jesus above all. And it hit me this week. See, when we talk about a specific word that we use all the time around church, we have trouble defining it. But when you talk about this, that she treasured Jesus above all, that's what it means to truly worship God. Worship is when we treasure Jesus above all. See, when we hear the word worship, we automatically think of what? We think of songs. We think of songs we sing often corporately when we gather together on Thursdays or Sundays or what we sing when we're in our car or on our playlist. We talk about a certain genre of songs. And listen to me. That is a facet, a small facet of worship. Songs are an important part of worship. Read the original Christmas story, even in Luke. Over half of it are songs. Zachariah sang a song. Elizabeth sang a song. Mary sang a song. The Christmas story is actually about songs. So when we treasure Jesus above all, yeah, we sing our songs, but it is so much more than our songs. Worship, when we treasure something, we orient our lives around that which we treasure. Think about the stories. Think about national treasure and how everything was sacrificed to try to find the treasure, even when people thought he was crazy for the treasure. Read Treasure Island, the exact same thing. See, when you treasure something, it doesn't matter. Whatever the price we have to pay, whatever sacrifices have to be made, whatever changes and adjustments have to come to our lives, they are nothing compared to having that which we treasure. That which we treasure is of greater value than everything else combined. That's the nature of the word. So the Apostle Paul, writing from a Roman prison, a prison he is in for no other reason than preaching the gospel of Jesus, he says, but whatever in this life was to my profit, add it all up. I now consider loss compared to Jesus. Take all the good things of life. He says, take my religious upbringing. Take all my status among the Jewish people. Take all the finances that I had earned. Take my family situation. Take whatever. You add them all up. And I consider them nothing for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. Say rubbish. Now here's the problem. Translators don't know what to do with this word in the original language because it's really on the edge of being a curse word. I mean, Paul is like pressing the envelope to try to get us to understand. So the real word would be the word for manure. We get in there? 
but then take the words you're not supposed to stay for manure that you get your mouth washed out for soap with. Do we do that anymore with kids? You should. Anyway, I'm just kidding. I'm not doing that. You know what I'm saying? So you take that word. You know, everybody know what the word I'm saying? I ain't going to say that word. Parents, you don't have to tell your kids what the word is. Just don't say it, kids, right? Paul is saying, I consider everything else in life that I may gain Christ. Why? Because Jesus and Jesus alone is the great treasure. Jesus and Jesus alone is worth us orienting our entire life around. That is the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that among everything he created, Jesus treasures one thing above it all. You. Now don't go get the big head because there's eight billion of us on planet Earth and he treasures them all the same. Some have estimated there's been 104 billion people live on planet Earth in its history. He, he valued all of them. He treasured all of them the same. But the amazing heart of the gospel is that God doesn't just value us at a certain level. He treasures. He treasures you enough that he would leave heaven, empty himself of his divinity and become human. And then he would become obedient to death, even death on a cross. So that you would have an opportunity to be with him. When someone treasures you that much, the natural response is to do what? To treasure them above everything else. And when we live our lives seeking Jesus as the greatest treasure, it's then that we are engaging in this thing called worship. Worship in spirit and worship in truth. And some of you right now, you've got, you have scriptures that are coming to your mind. You're remembering. Jesus said about life, hey, don't worry about what you eat. Don't worry about what you're going to drink. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Life's more than these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Those are the greatest things. Everything else will be added to you. Jesus told the story one time of a man who was in a field. And somehow in that field, he found a hidden treasure. And that treasure was of such great value that he went and sold everything that he had. And then went back and negotiated with the guy to buy the field. So he sold it all so that he could have that treasure. And Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. See, when we live our lives seeking that which is the greatest of treasure, it is then and then alone we are worshiping. But you know what I've discovered in life? I've discovered that life in this fallen world has a way of distracting us from the treasure of what is most valuable. You know what I'm talking about. We get easily distracted. One of the sayings we have in our culture is this. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Why do we say that? Because we get distracted from the main thing. Happens all the time. On the video, every person up there said they valued their family. I mean, we had to keep going and ask them what else did they value to get some other responses. But everyone said, I value my spouse, I value my kids. But I can't tell you how often people will be going through a marriage struggle. They'll be going through a family struggle. And what they'll say is this, hey, we just started living life. And there's just so many things going on in life. We begin to neglect our marriage. We begin to neglect our kids. We begin to get distracted. We just got off course a little bit from that which was most important. That is the reality of life. Do you know that it actually happened to Mary? 
There's an obscure verse in the Gospel of Mark we rarely talk about. In that day, everyone thought that the Messiah was going to rise up to be a political leader, raise up an army, make Israel not only free from Roman occupation, but was going to make Israel the lead nation on planet Earth. By the way, I'm absolutely confident that Jesus is going to do that. All those things when he comes again. But no one, not even Mary, had a grid that God had become flesh and would die for our sins. So when Jesus started doing what Jesus did, they expected, his family expected, the king is about to emerge. When his family heard about what Jesus was saying and doing, and if I may, what he wasn't saying and doing, they went to take charge of him, for they said what? He is out of his mind. It's like the family got together, and the brothers looked at Mary and said, Mama, Jesus has done gone muy loco. He's gone cray-cray. He's not doing what we thought he was going to do. Even Mary got distracted in life, right? I'm telling you, the greatest skill that I think we can develop in our faith journey, the greatest skill we can have in life is to treasure in word or deed, to actually treasure in our actions, in the orientation of our life, that which is most valuable. And when we do that, that is worship. Worship is when we treasure Jesus above all. The reason we gather as a church, the reason we do what we do is to help each other actually treasure in the way we live he who alone is most valuable. Because we get so distracted, we need to get together once a week. We need other disciplines in our lives to keep us focused, to keep us oriented in life. It's why we have seasons. It's why our forefathers of the faith develop seasons of celebration like Christmas. See, you would never know in a modern celebration of Christmas that it used to all be very much centered around Christ. Now there's just activities and there's buying and there's stuff and there's so much. And the actual celebration of the season distracts us from the one the season is about. I want to encourage you, take advantage of the season. Take advantage of the next week. And man, let's really just begin to orient our lives. I dare you to go home and just stare at that beautiful Christmas tree. And you know why it's beautiful? Because the Bible says that cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. And it reminds us that Jesus became our curse. And because he became our curse, he undid our curse. And what used to be a very cursed thing is now a very beautiful thing because that's what happens when we're in Jesus. That's where the tree came from. That's where the lights came from. Jesus is the light of the world. It's where the gifts came from. The gifts were never meant to be in themselves, but it's just to remind us that it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not of works, so you can't boast. Man, let's see these things. Let's meditate on these things. And let's sing our songs. Our songs are meant to do two things. Our songs are meant to be an overflow of our heart, but they're also a tool to reorient our lives around Jesus. I encourage you, take advantage of the season. And we are going to have Christmas Eve services. You probably know about We're going to start on, uh, we're going to have Christmas Eve service on the 24th. We're going to have Christmas Eve Eve on the 23rd. And we're going to have Christmas Eve 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 on the 22nd. They're all the same service. We just know you're going to travel. You're going to be out. Man, be a part of it. On the 22nd and the 23rd, information in your park news and online, um, we're going to have kids ministry. On the 24th, we're all going to gather in together at both of our campuses. We want you to be there. But even beyond that, would you bring somebody? 
I really want to ask you to do something right now. In the chair back in front of you, there's a card. Would you, would you really grab one right now? I'm going to tell you how to use it. I, I came up with an idea. Go grab one. Um, it really means you need to move. Like, you know, like, at least lean forward and fake it for me, okay? And here's what I challenge you to do. Get your phone out and take a picture of it. Because some of you say, man, it's just awkward to go up and hand somebody a card and go, hey, you want to come to church with me? But you can text them. Less invasive, less much problem. Why don't you just take a picture of it? You can text a few people and say, hey, we're having Christmas and we love it. Here's what I'm telling you. People need hope. Have we not discovered in the last three years people are void of hope? We have hope. We have it. There's people in your world that need what you have in a simple way you can be part of it. They just invite you to join you at one of these services. Or just join in with one of the services. Got it? And then just a little aside. We're going to do something here. On January the 1st, we're going to do online only. Say online only. So we're not going to gather physically. You're going to say, why, why are we doing that? Well, the reason, the primary reason is to do what we do every weekend takes hundreds if not thousands of 13 people. In fact, would you do something for me right now? Would you just put your hands together give a shout out to our serve team that do? Come on. Give it. It's incredible what they do. The worship team that is gathering around both campuses right now, the vast majority of them don't work here. But they showed up early this morning because they just want to serve you. And they want to help lead you in worship. Maybe after service you can say thank you to them. Or if you have your kids in the kids' ministry in either of our campuses right now, most of the people who do that just love your kids. They want to honor Jesus in the way they serve. If you're online right now, there are online pastors interacting with you. The vast majority of them don't work here. They're serving And we just want to take this one week, this one Sunday, and give them a break. And so we're going to have a great online service. It's going to be for your whole family. It's going to be a little bit shorter so your family can engage. The worship is going to be designed that you can do around your living room. You're going to engage. It's going to be a good word. We're going to do it that day only. And then on January 5 and 8, Thursday and Sunday, we'll go back to our normal services. You got it? Here's what I believe. You are here because you want to treasure Jesus. At some level, that's why you're here. There's, there's really no other reason to be here. Either you're seeking to find out whether it's true, or you're here because you know deep within you that the greatest treasure is Jesus, and I need help staying focused. I need help orienting my life there. See, I think we all, we all want to be married. We're amazed and go, how did she do it? Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. May it be to you, me as you said. I mean, there's a part of me that just wants to say, man, she was young. She was naive. She didn't know any better. I don't think so. There's another part of me that really wants to say she's the blessed Virgin Mary. She was different, and I can't be held accountable to that, but that's, that's not true. She treasured him. He wasn't an add-on to her life. wasn't ancillary.
calculating right now. I mean, honesty time. Does the way I live my life, would you dare ask, does the way I live my life show that I really treasure Jesus above all? I mean, I don't think any of us would say, well, where we need to be on that. I'm not. I'm not. But I want to be more in that path. I want to orient my life around the totality of who Jesus is. I mean, what would our songs be like in a moment? to give them those songs. That could be a step. What would this week look like if we treasured them above all? What if we took a step into that in our celebration? Maybe right now you'd ask the Lord, show me the things that are distracting me. And would you ask the Lord to help you put them in the right spot? Maybe the first of the year you want to do some fasting from the things that are distracting you from Jesus being the greatest of treasures. Sometimes what happens is God blesses us and we take those blessings and we make them a greater treasure than Jesus himself. Maybe like the ancient church has done with Mary. Mary was a blessing, but they've made her as important, not more important than Jesus himself. And we do the same thing with the blessings of God. Maybe we need to fast from some of the blessings for seasons so we can make sure we orient our lives. I don't know about you, but at the end of my life, somebody came to interview me and talk to me about my life. At the end, that person had to summarize my life. What a joy it would be. They would just say, and David treasured up all these things. David treasured Jesus. David treasured his God. Would that not be a great thing to have written on your tombstone and that be true? David Father, would you help us get to that place? We are amazed this season as we contemplate how much you treasure us. Our minds really can't begin to fathom or grasp it. We can't comprehend it. Would you just give us power to grasp a little bit more how great is your love, the height, the width, the breadth, and depth of it. Give us power to know this love, to know how greatly you treasure us. And we just want to, in response to you, we want to treasure you. There's so many good things you've blessed us with, Father, and we say thank you for those things. But they are not you. We say, oh God, with the Apostle Paul, whatever was to my profit, I now consider a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul could say he had lost everything for Jesus. I cannot say that. I don't think any of us can, Lord, but we want to be willing to be there. Convince us that what our heart hungers for is just more of you. Convince us that what our heart longs for is just to know you more. Give us grace to move into that. We love you, Jesus. Would you find pleasure in the songs of your people this morning? And more so, would you find pleasure in the way we just orient our lives around you in the days to come, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's give worship to our God.